Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is the 3rd of November. If you're like me, you might have stayed up too late last night, either watching election results or watching the Atlanta Braves beat the Houston Astros in the World Series. There you go. There's your first headline of the day, in case you missed that. Um, Here are some political headlines from overnight. Glenn Youngkin, a Republican uh, in Virginia, defeated incumbent Governor Terry McAuliffe uh, in the Virginia governor's race. So a lot of people uh, see this as a as a bellwether or um, or a leading indicator of how Americans are feeling about the agenda that's unfolding in Washington, D.C. And that's because, well, in part, this is the first very high profile governor's race to take place since the election of of President Joe Biden and the Democrats uh, taking control of both the Senate and the House. And so. But it's also because Virginia is like right there, like right. It's part of this is geography and context. And so it's an important race. Uh, It it wasn't just the election of uh, Glenn Youngkin um, as the governor. It's also the election of a Republican woman named Winsome Sears, who happens to also be African-American, to serve as the lieutenant governor and Virginia also gave control of the state's House of Delegates to Republicans by flipping five seats yesterday from the Democrat to the Republican column. So major um, shift in state uh, in statewide politics in the state of Virginia overnight. Eric Adams is now the mayor elect of New York City. He's a retired police officer. Also, the person who I would consider the most conservative option. Um, for citizens of New York in terms of the election of of a mayor there. That's significant. Minneapolis voters rejected an amendment to replace the police department. Um, That's a significant uh, vote as well. There are a number of ballot initiatives across the country, several that I was watching in Texas that I I couldn't uh, report on yet this morning. Um, And so we will wait to talk about some of those ballot initiatives in the days to come. It's certainly going to be interesting to consider as we gauge our, our current I don't know, maybe our our current political location in the river of this democratic exercise we call self-governance. All right. um, And in D.C., you may be wondering what has become or what is becoming of um, of the two spending bills that we have been watching. So Senator Joe Manchin has laid out his terms uh, to secure his vote on the $1.75 trillion economic package. Uh, and that is related to the complementary infrastructure bill. And so Manchin's biggest issues are climate change, taxes, Medicare, and immigration. It looks like they are looking to bring both bills to the floor during the week of November the 15th. That seems to be a timeline that Senator Manchin supports, and he is at this point um, the person who really is the the deciding vote or the decisive vote. 
So there you go. Uh, it also looks like an agreement has been reached to lower drug costs by empowering Medicare to negotiate prices for certain costly medications. Uh, the deal, it looks like, would cap what Americans pay for insulin at $35 a month. And that is a really, really um, significant note for folks on fixed incomes um, who are also diabetic. And so it's just some positive things happening in terms of decision making in Washington. And just want to point that out when, um, you know, when positive traction is made. All right. Jason Thacker is one of my favorite people to talk to when it comes to, well, artificial intelligence, um, all things, little bits and bites. Uh, He is he thinks in good ethical ways about things that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But it's the water we're swimming in in the digital universe. And so Jason and I are going to talk about Christians and social media. How do we need to respond to social media issues as Christians? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. In the eye of the All right, joining us now, uh, Jason Thacker from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church. Um, Jason, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always great to talk with you. Um, remind remind people of the title of your book about artificial intelligence, because I think that we're we're right on the cusp of needing to have renewed conversations about that. Yeah, uh, it's art. It's the age of AI, artificial intelligence, and the future of humanity. And what I do in the book is just giving a brief overview of what is AI, because it seems to be a little bit mysterious for a lot of folks. And then how do we think about it as Christians? How do we think wisely and biblically about it and apply these things? Because AI is everywhere in our life, whether we realize it or not. Absolutely. So um, thank you for that. I, I was talking with somebody recently about all of the ways that AI is already influencing and affecting our lives, and the list is pretty long. So, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, recent revelations uh, related to social media, um, you know, have been very, very troubling to people. There's a lot of hand-wringing, but I don't necessarily think that people know proactively what we can do or should do as Christians. You have an excellent piece um, posted at baptistpress.com. Uh, Christians need to, well, actually Tom Strode wrote it, but you, it's, all, it's, it's all your stuff. Uh, Christians need to respond to social media issues. So tell us what you told Tom and Tom told us in this piece. Yeah, in recent weeks, um, I think the public kind of came to find out what a lot of us had already known, that technology is incredibly powerful, uh, that it's incredibly involved and kind of intricately involved in most of our lives. And then we've seen in recent weeks kind of these revelations coming out from Facebook, um, a lot of these internal reports over the last few years talking about the ways that these platforms have had negative effects on society and some of the decisions that Facebook has made uh, that negatively impact our civil discourse, our civil health, and as well as our conversations and even our communities. And so what I'd try to do is help Christians frame this up in terms of biblical categories. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from all of these reports is something that most of us have already known is that technology is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly influential. One of the ways I like to talk about it is that technology is shaping us or discipling us. I think often we think of discipleship in the context of the local church, which is right. But these devices are with us all the time. They're within a foot or two of us 
all day long, all night long. We check them in the moment we wake up in the morning. We check them right before bed. And these things are having a profound effect on us. They're shaping us the way we think about not only ourselves, the way we think about God, but also the way we think about one another and communities and our families and our churches. And so I think one of the things that Christians can do is have take a more holistic view. I love what Dr. Albert Muller, uh, president of Southern Seminary, said a few weeks ago, that technology is a theological issue. And I would extend that to say it's also an ethical issue that the church needs to take seriously because there are theological elements, there are ethical elements that the church needs to respond to and to think about. Because as you said earlier, technology is everywhere and is having a profound effect on and is shaping us and discipling us in very specific ways. So Jason Thacker is the chair of research in in technology ethics, um, and he is inviting each and every one of us into the digital public square. It is an effort by the ERLC um, to help us understand where we are as Christians in the culture and then equip us um, to respond appropriately, to engage appropriately. And so you can find really great resources right now at ERLC.com backslash digital it's the digital public square and um jason what's the what's the hope here of the digital public square yeah the hope is really just to engage the local church on these really pressing issues of the digital public square I mean, every single day we see new revelations, new uh, stories coming out about the way that technology is shaping us and discipling us, as we talked about earlier. And it, it's good for Christians to be thinking biblically and to be thinking wisely about how to navigate these things, not only from the people in the pews, um, all the way up to high academics, to be thinking through how do we navigate these things as Christians and to bring a robust theological and ethical vision uh, to these really pressing questions. Because uh, technology is, as, as we've already said, is everywhere. It's something that's profoundly shaping and forming us into a very specific type of people. And so we need to be able to think through that, to cut through a lot of the hype, uh, to cut through a lot of the sensationalism that we see surrounding social media and its good and bad effects, and to think biblically about these things. And so what we're trying to do to, through this uh, research project is to provide resources for local churches and pastors and ministry leaders, but also those who are working in the halls of government or those who are working in these technology industries uh, to be thinking about these categories, whether it's from hate speech to um, international religious freedom to free expression uh, to religious freedom here as well in the United States is to be thinking through these things in a more biblical way um, in order to glorify God ultimately and to love our neighbors ourselves. All right, Jason, I, I love the use of the term navigation um, because navigation is like intentional. It means I have, yeah. you know, I, I can see on the horizon where I want to go and I am intentionally uh, working my way in that direction by, you know, putting my hands on the wheel and, and making sure that the rudder is, um, you know, is, is pushing me through the current of the times in the direction that I'm called to go um, versus just sort of going along for the ride, which just so many people are just blindly going along for the ride in terms of yeah. technology in the digital world today. All right, Jason Thacker and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. You can find really great resources for uh, engaging in the digital public square as a Christian at erlc.com backslash digital. We'll be right back. You got me singing like
Continuing our conversation with Jason Thacker. Um, Jason, when you think about just super practical ways that Christians can respond to social media issues today, maybe, you know, maybe take one platform like Facebook and give us some just practical ideas about how to engage, how to recognize when we're being led down a rabbit hole of disinformation, how to gently correct our, you know, our loved ones and friends, like take any of those threads and pull it. Yeah, I think at first, some of the best advice that I would give to folks is understanding that the Bible speaks to technology issues. Now, you're not going to go to a concordance and you're not going to find Facebook or social media or something like that referenced in the text. But there are biblical principles about how we engage not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with others. And that's what technology is mediating these relationships today. And so what we can do is we can apply these biblical principles and understand that our faith is very important to the way that we interact with one another. It's very important to the way that we think about technology issues and understanding, again, what technology is. Is it's a tool that God has given us, but it's a tool that God has given us that we have to wield with responsibility and understanding the power of these tools and how they're shaping and forming people. And then as we go in, I mean, one of the biggest kind of questions that I get asked about regularly is the nature of truth in the digital age, as you kind of reference with misinformation or conspiracy theories or fake news that's so easy uh, that we can give over to or we can kind of get uh, diluted by, especially on social media. And I think one of the biggest things we can do is slow down. That's one of the big lies of the technology age, this digital age, is that we need to speed up and go faster, faster, and faster. And what that does is it it causes us to not think wisely about the things that we're reading. Uh, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. We all know that in some sense, but when we see something that confirms what we already think or something that seems to be kind of audacious and crazy, I can't believe no one knows this, maybe there's for good reason. Maybe it's not true. Maybe it is. But this idea that we must just share, we have to continually kind of propagate these mistruths in some sense, whether it's for political gain or social gain or uh, to be a certain type of person online. I think one of the biggest takeaways is just to slow down a little bit, to realize that you don't have to tweet about it. You don't have to share that on Facebook. Uh, maybe take a little extra time and read the article or go and read a little bit what's on behind the article so that we're not sensationalizing truth because the Bible speaks very clearly to what is truth. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that we are called to live in accordance with objective realities of who God is, how he's created us in his image, and how he calls us to engage this world. And so truth isn't something that we get to decide. It's not something that others in society get to decide. It's something that God himself has set into motion. Um, and so as Christians, we align ourselves with that. And ultimately, we seek to love God and love our neighbor by upholding truth and say that truth does exist and that it's meaningful and that we as Christians need to live in accordance with that. And so we can slow down in the age of technology um, in order to think about, think about these things more wisely and more biblically. Maybe two other thoughts um, and have you comment on these. One is the witness or the representation of Christians, um, you know, in the digital world, um, on yeah. social media in particular. You know, what I post, what I choose to post reflects um, not only on me, but, you know, as a Christian, it reflects on Jesus. So I'd love for you to, to talk about that. And then um, the, the issue of accountability, 
Like, how how do we appropriately hold one another accountable when I see a brother or sister in Christ posting things on social media um, that just, man, they're just, it's not speaking truth and it's leading people in, you know, in an ungodly way. Like, are there appropriate ways to to hold one another accountable? Now, I'll start with that second question because I think that's one of the most important questions of the digital age for us, especially in the churches. How do we think about discipleship? How do we think about living in community with one another? Well, one is going to be prioritizing in-person embodied relationships. It's one thing to interact online, and while there might be appropriate situations where you interact with someone online or call them out or have a conversation, most uh, discipleship and some of the most formative aspects of that is going to be an in-person, in-flesh relationships. We saw this with the COVID-19 pandemic is that we long to be in community, to be in the presence of one another. And so I think some many of these hard conversations need to be had in person where you can see someone face to face rather than mediated through these kind of technologies or tools or even Zoom or FaceTime, et cetera, is to have those type of conversations, but do it in a relationship um, because that's where often we kind of live in this sense of anxiety. We live in this sense of pressure. There's so many things going on and kind of pulling us and tugging us in many ways. And so having that face-to-face conversation without technology around us can help us to kind of move the needle a little bit and talk about what's really going on. Because we often use technology as a way to kind of portray ourselves as a certain type of person online. And that's one of the ways that technology deludes us and confuses us is it makes us think that we have to perform always. But the gospel tells us that it's our value, our worth, our dignity is not based on how we perform or the way that other people see us or the way that they engage with us. It's based on who Jesus Christ is. And so, yes, we're all going to fail. We're all going to share an article that wasn't true. or We're probably going to interact inappropriately online. Um, but that's where we need to have friends and community who can speak truth and speak life into us and speak grace into us in that midst of an embodied personal relationship rather than something mediated by technology. All right, you guys can connect with Jason at his website, jasonthacker.com. One of the things you're going to see there is his book, The Age of AI. Um, You're also going to just see great resources that he posts um, every week. So that's jasonthacker.com. You can find um, ERLC Digital at ERLC.com backslash digital. Um, Jason, before we let you go, love for you to comment on the book that I know you are working on, Following Jesus in the Digital Age. Yeah, this is my next book. I'm really, really excited about it. Just turned it in about a month ago to my publisher and so looking forward to some edits uh, here soon. But it's called Following Jesus in a Digital Age with with B&H B&H Trade um, based out of here in Nashville. And what I do is I take the first chapter and just talk about what is technology? How is it shaping us? How is it discipling us and making us into its image? And then I navigate some of the big pressing challenges of the day, whether it's truth in the digital age, talking about personal responsibility and ethics in the digital age, as well as pursuing community. So in this, we talk about conspiracy theories, misinformation. We talk about algorithms and social media. And we also talk about the nature of community and kind of uh, even influencers and how often social media is shaping us and helping us are forcing us to see community in a certain way and kind of what does it look like for the church to recover a sense of biblical community in the digital age. I love that. I am so looking forward to it. Jason, um, thank you as always for what you do every single day. I want to encourage uh, you, if you're listening right now, 
to engage with Jason at jasonfacker.com. Hey, blessings, brother. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. I really appreciate it. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right. What in the world is going on in the world and how are Christians responding in spaces and places where you and I will likely never set our feet? Uh, Ruth Kramer joins us next from Mission Network News. Hey, thank you to those of you who are reaching out on the text line, sharing prayer concerns um, and thoughts uh, as well. Let me encourage you. um, We are a praying people at Faith Radio. We we love to pray. We pray regularly. And if you share your prayer request with us, we are um, we are faithful to lift those up personally to the Lord our God. So you can call us at 877-933-2484. You can text your prayer concerns to that same number. You can share your prayers with us, um, prayer concerns with us at MyFaithRadio.com. There's a secure way to do that on the website. Um, and so let me just encourage uh, everybody who's listening this morning. Um, we have a We have a sister in Christ who's just asking very specific prayers for intercession for her daughter who's made a a job application, um, and and she's having a lot of anxiety about that. So, like, we get that. We get the anxiety that we feel. Um, We also understand the stress that we have on behalf of our kids and our grandkids and our sisters and brothers and our neighbors and our friends. And so let's be people who intercede for one another. Let's hold each other up in prayer this day. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I've got Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News up next. With 6.1 trillion texts sent over the past year, our teens know how to communicate. But still, our teens are desperate for something more. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Our teens are desperate for connection. The need for relationships, for community, for a place of belonging drives our teens. But since they haven't learned to make connections other than the internet or text messages, they go to extremes to bond with others. Your team needs to be taught what it means to connect. Don't take the extreme approach by banning cell phones and Facebook. Instead, take a night to shut off all screens and connect with your family. Show your teenager that relationships aren't formed by texting on a phone. Look them in the eye and connect. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit ParentingTodaysTeens.org. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Our friend and sister in Christ, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News, joins us again today. You can read more about what we're talking about today, as well as other headlines from around the globe at missionnews.org. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So we um, we touched yesterday morning um, as it was breaking news um, on what was happening in Kabul, Afghanistan. And so I'm interested to know what you know. Um, about the uh, the dual suicide bombings yesterday and the aftermath? Well, the aftermath obviously is leaving uh, much of the country shaken. Um, it's also showing that the Taliban does not have complete control over uh, the areas that they said they had control over because they're still fighting an insurgency from ISIS-K. So Taliban is actually blaming ISIS-K for this attack. Um, in in spite of the fact that uh, the chaos that it created, um, it was a fairly a fairly short attack. It was deadly, but it was short. Um, 
you know, after the two explosions started things off, the gunmen entered the hospital. They began going room to room to shoot people. Um, and so right now the death toll stands at around uh, 25, I believe, from the hospital. The group of uh, Islamic State gunmen who were involved with the assault were all killed within 15 minutes. So, you know, it was uh, a, a highly volatile situation. It was extremely nerve-wracking. Uh, for those that were trapped in the hospital. Um, our partner at FMI actually called his contacts uh, in uh, in the city and uh, knows a nurse that was at the hospital uh, at the time of the attack. And she was just trying to get out of the hospital along with a number of other medical personnel. And the eyewitness accounts are just, you know, horror, horror at seeing how many people uh, were killed in this attack that they had to cross over in order to get out. Um, you know, when this nurse was actually uh, talking to our partner, Nehemiah, she said there were still active shooters in the building who were killing people that were coming their way. And one of the doctors had confirmed that they were going door to door, uh, room to room uh, to uh, find their next victims. So the situation is uh, still tense because of what's going on. It is revealing a kind of a crack in Taliban's armor. Um, it is showing that there's a, uh, I guess, a, a dissension within the ranks of Taliban because what ISIS-K is after is kind of complete mastery and they don't believe that what the Taliban is doing is uh, strict enough. It's not following uh, a, a strict form of Sharia law. <clears throat> and so you've got a lot of fighters who are actually abandoning the Taliban and joining ISIS-K. Uh, their goal, according to our partner uh, with FMI, is to kind of create a, a Khorasan, or for lack of a better term, like a, uh, a caliphate, um, out of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, India, Bangladesh, and anything around that area that would subscribe to Islamic Sharia law. Um, and that would be Sunni law, because they are uh, they are still trying to um, clear the, the Shia mosques, anywhere where you ha might have Shiites gathering. Uh, and they're also trying to kill uh, the Christians and remove their influence as well from the area. So it's a really difficult time. Um, like I said, we have partners through FMI that are in... Uh, on the ground in the area. So be praying for those who are the hands and feet of Christ in, in Kabul. Um, it, hands and feet of Christ in Afghanistan. It is an ugly situation. It is really nerve-wracking for those who are there, especially with these continued attacks that are happening. Um, and what we can be praying is not only that God gives these believers wisdom in how to do, carry out their mission, um, but also be praying for the fighters, those that belong to the Taliban, those that, that are joining ISIS-K, that somehow they have an encounter with Jesus, that they have one of those Saul to Paul kind of encounters, um, and that they are as uh, fervent in in their experience, uh, in what we, we believe will be their experience then with uh, the gospel as they are with uh, Islam. So be praying towards that end. And we serve a mighty God, and we just get, we have to leave it in, in his hands because these kinds of situations we really can't do much about. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was recalling as you were um, as you were talking there uh, what you had shared with us right at the end of August about you know the Christian families who were making their way from Afghanistan into Pakistan. 
um, and, F- and, and FMI was, you know, sharing information about how that was happening because those Christians knew they were, you know, they knew they were on, on lists. They knew their names were on lists. They knew that the Taliban were going to come for them. And now for you to talk about how, you know, FMI is looking at, at ISIS-K and, and saying, you know, look, that the Taliban is no longer viewed as, you know, as strict enough um, and that they're described as as liberal um, by those who are now joining ISIS and that many, many Taliban fighters are now, you know, moving their or shifting their allegiance to ISIS-K. Um, it is it is troubling on so many fronts um, and praying for our Christian brothers and sisters and those who are of what will be considered minority faith, so Shia Muslims as well in the region, I just think is, is paramount. And um, and the stories coming out of uh, of Afghanistan and the rest of the region are, are likely to be, uh, continue to be very, very harrowing. I want to turn our attention to Nigeria, if I can. Um, you have another very harrowing headline for us out of Nigeria. What's happening there? Well, this was an attack uh, on Abuja. Um, yesterday took place uh, several hours after the Kabul attack, not related, but there was a lot of stuff that was coming out yesterday as we were trying to get around and and get to our partners to find out what was going on. Uh, The attack actually took place at the University of Abuja, which up till now has been uh, a fairly calm spot in Nigeria. Um, And they haven't had some of the issues that northern Nigeria has seen with Boko Haram, uh, which, by the way, uh, Nigeria is experiencing a similar kind of situation within its its ranks of extremists. Um, you have uh, the uh, Islamic State of West Africa province that has formed out of the Boko Haram because they didn't feel like Boko Haram was following a strict enough Sharia law. So the Islamic State has formed a chapter within Nigeria to try to begin developing that caliphate um, with other like-minded countries uh, similar situation. And so Nigeria has been dealing with a lot of issues um, with the Boko Haram, the uh, ISIS situation, and also the Fulani herdsmen. In this situation, though, the, there hasn't been anyone who's claimed uh, uh, credit for the attack. So we're, t- we're having to just kind of call them bandits. Um, they're gunmen. And uh, when you're looking at how many uh, extremist groups or how many groups of criminals are roving throughout the country, um, it it is easy to see how difficult it would be to try to maintain national security in Nigeria. The Christians in Nigeria are especially upset because the government has been so uh, ineffective with trying to prevent the attacks, trying to get their, you know, protection so that they're not directly in the crosshairs. Uh, of of the Fulani and the Boko Haram and ISWAP, and now you have this other situation on top of it. Again, the, uni- the, the kidnappings at the University of Abuja are not related to the um, sectarian issues. However, it is showing that the, the country is really having a difficult time with national security. In this situation, it's Abductions are kind of a grim part of life in Nigeria. People are always being grabbed out of cars, out of buses, markets, their homes. Schools are an especially uh, valued target because there's so many uh, potential ransoms 
within the, the population of children. So it wouldn't be the first time that you would see uh, an attack on a school because you've heard of all of the, the mass kidnappings. I think we've, we've been talking about uh, the types of kidnappings where you've got um, thousands of people who have been kidnapped within a single year. Uh, and they're, they're being put up for ransom in many situations. Uh, in a couple of situations, it, the, the kidnappings cover for attacks that are sectarian. So up and closer to the border with Somalia, um, you have the Al-Shabaab coming over uh, in Kenya and, um, and, and similar ideologies that are coming over the border in Nigeria to attack Christian schools and kidnap their students. Um, there are a lot of situations there where you have forced conversions, where you have um, things where they are trying to uh, indoctrinate the Christian students into Islam. Mm -hmm. So it's a very difficult situation. There are a lot of parallels that we see between uh, Afghanistan and Nigeria because of the situation with ISIS and ongoing insurgencies. Just be praying for the, the, the people who are working as the hands and feet of Christ in these areas. Um, you know, we spoke with Voice of the Martyrs USA about the situation in Abuja um, because they are so closely tied in with the network of believers there. And they have a lot of safe houses where they've been trying to help uh, the the survivors of Boko Haram and Fulani attacks. And this is just one more thing on top of everything else that should drive us to our knees and pray for the body of Christ as they're looking for ways to be a voice of hope, to be uh, uh, exemplifying that peace that passes understanding in a time of absolute chaos. Yeah, Ruth, we're hearing from, um, from listeners who are just so appreciative for um, the way you you bring us information and news from around the world and let us know how our Christian brothers and sisters um, are engaging um, on the front lines uh, of a very, very challenging um, social and political situations. And so, um, Jim, uh, from Simsbury, Connecticut, thanks for uh, your appreciation extended to Ruth. Uh, Ruth Kramer and I will be back in just a moment. We're going to uh, pivot to a conversation about Lebanon and what's going on there. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Welcome to the first church of mercy, where the doors of love swing open wide. No matter who you are. Continuing our conversation with Ruth Kramer from Mission News. You can find her at missionnews.org. Um, Ruth, bring us up to date on what is happening in Lebanon. Well, we spoke with our partners, Horizons International, about the freefall uh, of what's happening in Lebanon with the economy and so many other things that are happening and massive, you know, uh, uh, waves of people who are leaving the country because it's just so untenable to stay there. Um, the World Bank says that Lebanon's financial disaster, in fact, is the worst since 1850, uh, and it's teetering on the edge of being called a failed state. You know, So it would join the ranks of countries like Nigeria or Afghanistan or Somalia uh, at this point because the government is not functioning, the economy is in free fall, and there's an ongoing insurgency, which would be for Lebanon, Hezbollah. Um, so it's it's a difficult situation. Um, Horizons International has been keeping us up to date on what is going on within the country, how much the partners that are uh, really trying to ramp up to meet those physical needs, because most people now are having difficulty um, just being able to get food. Um, a lot of people yeah, are... I mean, if we think we have supply chain issues, right? I mean, ministries around the world are 
equally challenged. It's just um, there's a there's a confluence of really challenging things going on simultaneously. Absolutely. I mean, they're dealing they're still dealing with COVID issues. And don't forget that uh, they that Beirut lost one of its major ports with that explosion last year. Um, so that hasn't been rectified and there's still a lot of damage that hasn't even been fixed. So anything that they've got coming into the country is not coming in through that port. Um, and so you do have supply chain issues. You do have uh, a lack of uh, availability to uh, for, for, for medicine, um, basic kind of stuff. And then on top of that, you had a, a fuel problem where, um, you know, they couldn't the country couldn't get hold of uh, fuels and the subsidies ended. So you wound up not having electricity for a while. And, you know, Lebanon is a fairly developed country. And all of a sudden it feels like it went right down to developing nation status overnight. Uh, And so ministries that are there are really counting on the body of Christ outside of Lebanon to help keep things going, to help them be able to be hands and feet in a very practical way, providing education, providing those that need shelter with shelter, um, you know, your basic supplies of food, uh, water, because water doesn't always run when you have no electricity. And and it's it's really basic stuff that they're asking for help with. And, you know, the, the situation being that the inflation rate, it fluctuates so frequently that you know, the price of bread in the morning is going to be maybe twice that by the afternoon because the the, the situation is so fluid. Um, so U.S. dollars are highly sought after. Now, I want to bring this in because every time we talk about Lebanon, it just sounds like it just keeps getting worse and it's it's terrible situation. Um, and at some point, you know, I asked another partner from our, the prayer ministry cry out now, is there any good news happening in Lebanon? And what he said is, yes. There is, <laughs> he, I wouldn't, if we're going to take the metaphor, light at the end of the tunnel, and knowing that typically when we talk about Lebanon, that light at the end of the tunnel is the headlight of the train, um, the train is stopped. So there's still a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's still a train, but at least it's not moving forward right now. <laughs> um, and, and that's the metaphor we're going to go with, because right now what we're hearing is that the government, the sitting government, foreign minister, says that negotiations with the International Monetary Fund are likely to start next, uh, actually later this month, because we're in November now. Um, and that means that they have to have a sitting government, which means mm-hmm. they're trying to get things in place to get things moving. From what we're hearing from Cry Out Now, we're actually hearing that um, some of the inflation has slowed, so the free fall has slowed. They're not frenetically printing money anymore, at least within the last week. And people have a little bit more freedom to with buying power. So some of the costs have been regulated a little bit. Um, and it's starting to feel like not such a, a pressure grip. So people are beginning to say, maybe there's a little bit of hope that we can get through this and not be taken over by Hezbollah, which is something that is very concerning for a lot of Lebanese because they don't want to be um, you know, a satellite of, of Iran. At the same time, what we're also hearing is that there's been a deal reached between Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria on uh, a power provider which means the lights will stay on. And that's another step in the right direction uh, to try to stop the free fall of what's happening in Lebanon. So those are economic ways that we're seeing um, some some 
good news. The train has sort of stopped, you know, so like I said, you know, you still have the headlight shining there. You're not really sure if this is going to be a permanent situation, if this, the good news is going to stay this way. Um, but at least it gives people some breathing space. On the other side of things, in terms of kingdom building, this crisis has driven so many people to search for hope, and they're pounding on the doors of the church to get those answers. So people that would ordinarily never listen to the gospel or give it any credence are now saying, I need something bigger than myself. I need this hope that I see that's coming from the Christians. They're still giving sacrificially. I don't know why. We've got people coming in from the United States, staying here in a time when they're absolutely out of their minds, and I want to know why they're here and who this Jesus is that they represent. Amen. Amen. Ruth, as always, um, thank you so very much. Want uh, want you guys to check out what else is available and being reported on at missionnews.org. I think you will find the reporting related to Myanmar um, very illuminating today as well. Uh, we don't have time to talk with Ruth about that, but um, I think that's an article that's going to bring you up to date on what's happening in Myanmar. Um, so there's just tons of great stuff. Check it out, missionnews.org. Ruth Kramer, blessings and thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Okay, um, for those of you who were looking for an update on uh, the 17 missionaries uh, held captive in Haiti, uh, my update there, because somebody um, texted in, I heard that one person had been released. So um, Jean-Pierre Ferrer Michael is a 79-year-old American pastor who was kidnapped by the same gang in Haiti two weeks prior to the 17 missionaries that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. So Jean-Pierre Ferrer-Michael and the other person uh, uh, in his congregation that were kidnapped a couple of weeks prior to the 17 missionaries, those two men have been um, freed. They have been released um, after their families and congregations paid some 500 and $50,000 in ransom. Um, and so the other um, news item related to this is an open letter to President Biden, actually from the families of 26 American hostages being held in Syria, China, Venezuela, Rwanda, Iran, Russia, and Egypt. And so there are Americans being held captive um, around the world for ransom. Um, and let's be praying for all of them and each of them as you know as we seek their liberty all right friends we have another hour of mornings with carmen up next stay tuned we'll be right back thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with carmen laburge from faith radio if you haven't you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through itunes or the google play music app that way you never miss an episode it's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com